We're diving back into Job as we work through uh, the dialogue, which is the, the majority of Job. Oftentimes what people want to kind of cruise through and just cherry pick out a few things here and there, but it's, it's helpful. The Holy Spirit inspired this for us to read it, to understand it, to apply it. Uh, and we're kind of coming to now a question of hope as we switch to the second cycle. And hope is a critical thing because when we lose hope, we tend to let go or to give up. Without hope, we lack purpose, we lack gumption, and I just put here, we lack. And so we need to be attentive uh, to the misapplication of hope. Uh, we need to see the devious ways that Satan attempts to destroy real hope. And, and what we're driving to as you look at this is the friends are going to start talking in a way that says there's no hope in approaching God, uh, that you have to follow the system and that's where hope lies. You have to follow tradition and that's where hope lies. But there is no hope in going to God in the way that Job wants to approach God. And, and we need to see how Satan can so quickly deceive us and remove real hope because that's what we're looking at this morning, a question of hope. Now, as I mentioned, we're moving into round two of the speeches, and this topic of hope will circle through all of the friends' speeches. Now, they might not say there is no hope, but what they're going to teach is a hopelessness in Job's desire to approach God and to be made right with God or be proven right before God. Because remember, Job is consumed with his relationship with God, and the friends are consumed with the fact that you don't have a relationship with God, that God is distant. And so what we're going to see circling through this next round of conversation is this idea of hope. The friends are going to be removing it, and Job is fighting for it. Now, you know with Job that in the midst of his battle and his struggle, you're seeing a lot of despair. We're going to see a lot of darkness that comes in. Uh, and that's the reality of the situation. This is a walk through reality because as we journey through suffering and as we wrestle with these key topics, and remember, as your friends are chirping in a wrong theology, that weighs on you. And we're going to see Job's despair, but we're also going to see these bright moments where he is pointing to what can be his only real hope. Now, Job had wrapped up the first cycle with a long speech. And I don't know if you've noticed, Job is typically long-winded. So uh, the only one that gets really long later on is Elihu, and he has six chapters of long-winded, and we'll break his up when we get to that. Uh, Job had a long speech, and he kind of pointed ahead to the friends of this idea of forgiveness of sins and resurrection. He's looking for life. He's moving in a certain direction. But Eliphaz is not buying into this idea of grace He's not buying into this idea of God connecting in a relational way. And so his tone starts to sharpen in speech number two. He's more confrontational and he's harsher. So let's take a look at what Eliphaz says. And I put in parentheses next because this is round two for him. Now, I want you to realize something about Eliphaz. There's no room in his theology for undeserved suffering. And that is the, the issue that the friends are wrestling with. They see Job suffering and their system says, He's done something wrong, and they cannot handle the undeserved suffering side of this. Now, remember, we've been given an insight in chapter one. God says Job is blameless. That doesn't mean sinless. That means he's a man of integrity. He's making sacrifices, and he's innocent. He's perfect. And so we know what God says about Job, and Job is arguing for the same thing that God has said about him. But the friends are not aware of that, and they're sitting there and seeing suffering, and they cannot handle undeserved suffering. But I want you to realize something. When you can't handle undeserved suffering, you cannot have room for grace because there's no room for undeserved grace. There's no room for the gospel. There's no room for Jesus Christ because if there's no undeserved suffering, then when you look at the cross, and we talked about this two weeks ago, when you look at the cross, how would they describe the cross? Oh, he must have sinned. He must have done something wrong because his life doesn't line up with the system. And so I want you to realize that as these friends are talking, though some of the things they say are true, we are wicked and we're horrible and we drink iniquity. They're application is wrong because it centers on their system. And so that's what Eliphaz is going is to say. He's going to come now to the second cycle. He's going to address Job directly. And he starts by correcting Job's errors. And he does it in a very personal way. He starts by reprimanding Job and in essence, ridiculing Job's defense. This is the first 16 verses of chapter 15. So it says, then answered Eliphaz the Temanite and said, should a wise man utter vain knowledge? 
and fill his belly with the east wind? Should he reason with unprofitable talk or with speeches wherewith he can do no good? And this is what he's saying. He says, you have, and he gets descriptive here, you have the east wind in your gut. The east wind came off the desert. It brought unpleasant heat and brought no rain. And so Eliphaz gets really descriptive to Job. He says, your belly is full of a useless wind. It's unpleasant and it doesn't bring any rain at all. He goes on by connecting it to his belly instead of his heart. He says, you're, you're, you're just emotional wreck. You're not reasoning. You're just from your belly, the seat of your emotions, and you're bringing nothing to the table. He goes on in verse four, yea, thou castest off fear and restrainest prayer before God. And he says, you're breaking faith with your words. You're teaching a new way that will undermine the current system. That's what he means when he says, thou castest off fear. Because Eliphaz is saying this, if you have undeserved suffering, why in the world should I be virtuous? You're casting off fear. You're casting off a reason to do what's right. And you're restraining prayer to God. You're making it where no one needs to approach God. If there's undeserved suffering, then who cares if you're right? And you notice their really materialistic way of looking at life. I'll do good so I get good. If I do bad, I'll get bad. And so, Job, you're ruining the system. I've been good for a long time, and I've got good things, and you're messing with my theology. It says, for thy mouth uttereth thine iniquity. And and here's the thing. Eliphaz is a And I'll mention this later. He's a gifted communicator. Uh, He heard Job's words and he's actually going to take Job's words. And now he's going to try to condemn Job with his own words. So is he smart and, and, and crafty? Yes. Is he using it for God's purpose? Absolutely no. And we know that at the end of the book. For thy mouth uttereth thine iniquity and thou choosest the tongue of the crafty. Thine own mouth condemneth thee and not I. Yea, thine own lips testify against thee. He says, you're speaking out of your sin You're defending yourself for being sinful and doing so by asking God questions. You're being harsh towards God. And I want you to remember something we said. What do the friends view God? They view God as flimsy. They view God as somebody who needs their protection. They think that they define God and defend God better than God does himself. At the end of Job, God looks at them and says, basically, I'm going to annihilate you unless Job gives you a sacrifice. In other words, God says, you haven't said the truth about me. And so actually, when he speaks about how he's so right and that they need to defend God, in the end, we see that they weren't right. And God verbally condemns them for what they've said. Then he goes on, art thou the first man that was born or wast thou made before the hills? And by the way, this is a whole petty thing from him. Hast thou heard the secret of God and dost thou restrain wisdom to thyself? Are you the only smart person in the world? What knowest thou that we know not? What understandest thou which is not in us? With us are both the gray-headed and very aged men, much elder than thy father. We live in a society that emphasizes youth. They lived in a society that emphasized wisdom and being old. And, And here's what you have with Eliphaz. This is his overreaction to Job's defense. Job had defended his own wisdom. And now Eliphaz is acting like Job implied that he alone was the wise one. So Eliphaz is barraging him with a series of rhetorical questions to subject Job and to elevate the friends. And I put in parentheses here, pretty petty considering Job's life circumstances. Eliphaz felt a slight hint of of pushback from Job, the slight questioning of his wisdom. And we're going to get to this. How dare Job think that me, Eliphaz, was wrong. How dare Job question my advice? I had a dream. I shared my dream. It was from God, which we know it's from Satan, but he thinks it's from God. And so he, he comes with this petty pushback. Hey, we're even older than your dad, Job. We know more than your father knows. You don't know anything, basically. And I put here, it's petty given the life circumstances. And then I, I had a note, but how often are we petty as well? And this is, this is a side note to what he's saying. As you're dealing with someone who's suffering, I'm going to ask you this question. How petty are you? Do you react 
The second you feel a little pushback into your area of pride or what you think you know best about, you feel the need to address every single little component that person said because, boy, you got to make sure they know how smart you are. That's Eliphaz right now. And again, it's, it's, it's kind of a side note to all the things he's saying, but keep that in mind as you deal with suffering. Um, are the consolations of God small with thee? And recognize this. He goes from saying we're super smart to now linking his statements to God's words. These guys are literally saying God is speaking directly through us. So he's saying, are the consolations of God small with thee? Is there any secret thing with thee? Why doth thine heart carry thee away? And what do thy eyes wink at that thou turnest thy spirit against God and lettest such words go out of thy mouth? Here he's taking offense with Job not accepting his advice. And he compares their advice as words from God. And then I want to remind you, he had a creepy vision in chapter four, go back to it, where the hairs on his head come up and all this kind of, we read it and we immediately think that doesn't sound like God. That sounds like Satan. That sounds like an unclean spirit. Yet he sees it as God. And so he's coming here and he's pushing back and saying, how dare you not listen to me? He says us, but he's really meaning me. And how dare you not listen to what God has said through us? And he accuses Job of responding in anger toward God because Job is pridefully frustrated. What is man that he should be clean? And, and he which is born of woman that he should be righteous? And let's be honest, that's a good question. We aren't clean and we aren't righteous. Well, we live in a world that wants to pretend we are. And that's their way of ignoring God. Because if you really think about it, if there is a God, which there is, you're not worthy of him. And the world knows that. So they just get rid of God. You can either distance yourself from God and kind of put him off as this higher being and then you just function in whatever you do, believing in a higher being, Eliphaz, them. There's a lot of intelligent design thought that goes there, not to pick on it, but show it. Or you can reject God because either way, you have to address the fact that God is God and we're not worthy of him. So Eliphaz is correct in his question here. He says, behold, he putteth no trust in his saints. He doesn't trust his angels. Yea, the heavens are not clean in his sight. How much more abominable and filthy is man which drinketh iniquity like water? How much worse are you? And the fact is we are worse. But see, Eliphaz's application is this. You can't be right with God. It's not possible the way you're walking into this, Job. There's only one way. Repent, but you can't repent of something you haven't done is what Job has been saying. I haven't done anything to repent of. I've sacrificed. He's not pretending to be sinless. But see, Eliphaz is saying, you're horrible, wicked. And we know that this is a truth about humanity, yet their application is wrong. See, he's reiterating his message from chapter four and humanity cannot be right before God. There is no reason to hope because humans are disgusting and filthy to God. God doesn't even trust his angels. Yet notice this, he leaves no room for mercy and grace. Eliphaz leaves no room for hope. Job, you cannot talk to God. You cannot approach God. There is no way to God. What did Job say back in nine? I have a mediator. I need God as my mediator. I need him to step in. I need him to step in and mediate between me and him. The mediator between God and you is God. And so Eliphaz is coming back and saying, there is no mediator. He's not going to step in for you. Because he, he, he comes back to this. There's no undeserved suffering. And so there's no undeserved grace. And I want you to recognize how their worldview strips out salvation. That there is no redemptive purpose in God. That God's not caring in that way. He's distant. We just do what he says. And you need to repent because you've obviously done something wrong because your life is not going right. So get your life right to get the things you want. And if it's wrong, then you've been wrong. Now he shifts his speech, and this is where he gets more creative, to show the miseries of an anonymous wicked man, though he uses Job's words to describe him. So it's when Job says, I'm filled with anxiety, Eliphaz is going to say, wicked people are anxious. And it doesn't take a big jump, right, to realize that Eliphaz is connecting Job to this wicked man, but he has enough social graces to not say, Job, this is you. But he very creatively makes sure Job knows this is who he's talking about. And so he goes on, I will show thee, hear me, 
And that which I have seen I will declare, which wise men have told from their fathers and have not hid it, unto whom alone the earth was given and no stranger passed among them. Before I give you instruction, let me link it all back to our favorite theme, tradition. We've known this for generations and generations have shared this information and therefore this information must be correct because it's been shared for generations. It's good logic, right? By that logic, the world's flat. And I know if that shocks anybody, take a science class, it's not flat. But either way, they're saying there's no way the past got it wrong. They've never had a stranger come in. And by the way, we see the word stranger in our world. We study and we analyze different things as they come in. In the ancient world, you had a pocket of wisdom and you didn't want that wisdom corrupted by an outside influence. And so when they say no strangers come in, Eliphaz is saying, look, we have pure wisdom. It's not been corrupted by outside influences. And he's accusing Job of being a corrupting force. He goes on, the wicked travaileth with pain all his days. And the number of years is hidden to the oppressor. A dreadful sound is in his ears. In prosperity, the destroyer shall come upon him. And remember how prosperous Job was and how much he has lost. Remember how he talks about pain all of his days, talks about how he can't get the basically voices out of his head and the thinking. He believeth not that he shall return out of darkness and is waited for of the sword. He wandereth abroad for bread, saying, where is it? He knoweth not. He knoweth that the day of darkness is ready at his hand. Trouble and anguish shall make him afraid. They shall prevail against him as a king ready to the battle. And here Eliphaz focuses in on the feelings or thoughts of a wicked person. By the way, these are feelings that Job has expressed. And so Eliphaz is basically saying to Job, this is what wicked people feel. And you've said that you feel this way, so you must be wicked. And he kind of carries it on. Wicked people don't have it easy, which is not accurate. Job talked about that, right? The marauders and all these people coming in and doing wickedness and they live at ease. And Eliphaz says, no, they don't have it easy. And you've said you don't have it easy. They're constantly worried. Even when things are going well, they're filled with anxiety. Job has admitted to being filled with worry and anxiety. The wicked fear of violent death and no assurance of a long life. And then it says, you'll lose, wicked people lose their wealth and are left with nothing. And what is Job sitting on? Sitting on a heap outside of town. Not because he's throwing himself a pity party, because he's not allowed back in town. He's, he's, he's a byword. We're going to talk about that. And then Eliphaz kind of shifts to the outcome. And he starts by talking about why they're in this position. For he stretched out his hand against God and strengthened himself against the Almighty. The reason wicked people have agony and the fate is their defiance against God, which they're accusing Job of. You're being defiant against God. How dare you ask God to prove you innocent? You can't do that. This is why you're, this is why you're suffering. This is why you're wicked. Then he goes on. He runneth upon him, even on his neck, upon the thick bosses of his bucklers. And this is actually speaking of how when the wicked person feels confident, they're willing to challenge even God. And again, they're coming back to to condemn Job for his question, for his conversation. See, when the wicked feel invincible, they welcome any challenge. And then it goes on in 27 through 30, talks about why he can't fight. Because he covereth his faith with his fatness and maketh collops of fat on his flanks. And he dwelleth in desolate cities and houses which no man inhabiteth, which are ready to become heaps. He shall not be rich, neither shall his substance continue, neither shall he prolong the perfection thereof upon the earth. He shall not depart out of the darkness. The flame shall dry up his branches, and by the breath of his mouth shall he go away. See, the wicked are ready to fight, but they've indulged themselves and become soft and fat. By the way, um, I lived at the wrong time. Back in ancient times, if you were fat, you were, you were prosperous and wealthy. So poor Kelvin is poor as a church mouse, and I'm, I'm sitting here rich on stage here. That's what it boils down to. <laughs> but the problem is when you're all chunky and wealthy, you can't fight. And so this, this wicked person he's describing, he gets all set for battle, but he's so fat with all the wicked spoils that he's not ready to fight. And so he ends up dwelling in a, a desolate city. They're slow and unprepared. His rule and his kingdom becomes desolate with nothing but heaps. His wealth and authority are lost. Who lost their wealth? Job. Who lost their authority? They've been kicked out of the city they probably built. Job. (laughs) And he says, this person's not going to escape death. God's going to burn him up. Notice the hopelessness. They're pushing Job toward hopelessness instead of hope in God. God is going to burn you up. 
Don't go to God. You're not going to get help from God. And they're not saying that in an undermine God way, but they're undermining God. Because they're pushing Job towards hopelessness. Let not him that is deceived trust in vanity, he says, for vanity shall be his recompense. It shall be accomplished before his time, and his branch shall not be green. And you're going to be thrown back to that illustration about growing back after you've been cut down. And he's saying, you're not growing back. You're not coming back. He shall shake off his unripe grape as the vine and shall cast off his flower as the olive. In other words, your fruit is going to fall before it's supposed to. For the congregation of hypocrites shall be desolate and fire shall consume the tabernacles of bribery. They conceive mischief and bring forth vanity and their belly prepareth deceit. And this closing section states the certainty of the wicked person's fall. They better not trust in vain options, thinking they can regain what is lost. In other words, now the friends are saying to Job, you're not coming back. You're not like a tree that can regrow. The wicked person will not even be allowed to ripen the fruit, but will unnaturally drop the fruit. These wicked congregation of hypocrites will reap no harvest. The soil is going to be barren to them, desolate. Their deceitful ways will be burned up. They sow wrong and will reap that iniquity, even to the extent of being self-deceived while trying to deceive others. Now we understand a little bit of what Eliphaz is saying. He's a super nice guy, as you can see. Now go on to what Eliphaz means. See, Eliphaz is sticking with something, and it's his tradition, and he accepts no attack against it. Why has he turned the thermometer up? Why has he gotten this harsh? Why has he taken Job's words and flipped them on Job? It's because he has to protect his worldview at all costs, and he has to abandon any sense of comfort or help for a hurting friend battling horrific circumstances. So he's not a friend anymore. He really wasn't one beforehand, and he's just intensified now, and I have to protect how I see things, and I can't let you mess with that. His, his worldview cannot handle undeserved suffering that Job is facing, and this is what you have to understand. It means their worldview cannot handle undeserved grace, which all humanity needs. That's why our world does what it does with God, because it, it cannot handle the thought of God, because the thought of God drives it to a need. It needs God's mercy and grace. But see, these guys are on the reverse side of it. They're saying, I see undeserved suffering and I can't have that because it ruins my system. See, so Eliphaz tells Job that he makes no sense. That's verses one through 16. You're not sharing any wisdom or bringing anything of value to the conversation or your circumstances. One author said this, this is what Eliphaz is saying about Job's words. They're empty, they're dangerous, they're self-justifying, they're arrogant, hurtful, and unrealistic. That's 16 verses. That's what he accomplished in 16 verses to talk about Job. He's saying Job is saying things that are worthless, but more than that, what Job is saying rejects traditional wisdom. It rejects Eliphaz's wisdom, and he says that means it rejects God's wisdom. Eliphaz says to Job, you're leading people astray. Not only are you suffering for iniquity, but now you're dragging other people down the wrong path. And so Eliphaz wanted to communicate clearly the outcome of the wicked. And he does it cruelly using Job's own shared feelings. <clears throat> he takes what Job has, says, has said, and he's now, as a gifted communicator, twisting it to make his point. He wants to make sure Job understands this. There's no hope. 17 through 35 is all about there not being hope for Job. And really, there's no hope for humanity, but Eliphaz doesn't know that. Eliphaz paints a terrifying picture of the wicked, their uncertainties, and their fate, and it's a picture that replicates the description Job has given himself. Tradition says you suffer for wrongs you do. You're rewarded and blessed for goods you do. Do wrong, face punishment. Do good, get rewarded. Tradition cannot handle undeserved suffering because undeserved suffering undermines their system. And so, therefore, there can be no grace. Their worldview... And by their worldview, going to God is a hopeless endeavor because God is distant and unapproachable. Humanity cannot have a relationship with him and the rules are set. Eliphaz is telling Job this, stop rewriting the game. The game's set. This is life. You get good for good. You get bad for bad. You chose bad. You've got bad. Quit whining about it. Play the game. This is what we do. Job, with his incessant desire to be right with God, though I'm going to say this not always worded correctly, <clears throat> his constant hope in God and not the way they know, 
undermines their system, and it cannot be tolerated. So I just want to look at a few takeaways as we see what Eliphaz has done. And I think you can see who he is as a comforter, but just a couple of things. One, notice this. Eliphaz manipulate Job's words to make his point that Job is wrong. And I put here, beware of misusing the words of a sufferer to make your point. And I put regardless of your point. When you grab the words of a sufferer and you take those and you build your points from there, that's not a godly way to counsel and to help. Don't be consumed with your point that you neglect to listen carefully to the words of the sufferer and respond with grace. The friends show us a graceless living. What it looks like to just have no mercy and no grace. Secondly, as the church, the body of Christ, let's, as Christopher Ash notes, not let the grace leach out of our teaching and our convictions. You see, these comforters were stuck on their traditions, which cannot handle undeserved suffering and therefore denies undeserved grace. And as one author notes, wherever grace is denied, cruelty follows. This world is cruel. The system doesn't work, by the way. The world that pretends to live by the system cannot live by the system. It falls apart and cruelty is what follows. So as the church, let's remember we're to bring a message of hope and grace to a dying world in desperate need of it. What did Eliphaz do? Told Job what he's facing and what he's looking forward to. That's all he said. And he stripped hope. He stripped any connection to God that was there. We share a message of hope linked directly to our Lord and Savior. So let our message not be one of hopelessness that's centered on our traditions, but instead a message of hope centered on Christ. Now, Job has the distinct ability of always answering somebody. And so here he comes along again. So after this great comforter, Eliphaz speaks, Job responds. And now we move on to what Job says. And I'm going to be honest, 16 and 17 are one of the low points in the book. I mean, Job gets pretty down. Um, It's mainly addressed to God. There's hints, the beginning is addressed to the friends, and there's a portion in 17, I believe, that comes back to the friends. And he says something about God, and this is why it's one of the low points. He says that God is his enemy. When he references mine enemy, I think it's verse 11, he's not talking about Satan. He actually used a word, satam, which means hater, active hate. And it's so closely linked to Satan that everyone knows that Job is just hinting to this idea. And when I say it's, it's dark, when Job reaches the point of looking at God and saying, he is my adversary, and he uses a word as closely linked to Satan as possible. But here's what's fascinating. Hope shines brightly forth from his words directly after He accuses God of being his adversary. So what we find is that even in his darkest, deepest, worst moment when it comes to speaking to God, Job follows with, I'm hoping in God. He's confident about that, that God is his mediator. One writer notes this, the fierce conviction that there is a witness in heaven is far stronger than the hope of chapter nine. So when Job in chapter nine talks about the hope of a mediator and how he's looking for it, now he doesn't hope for a mediator. He affirms there is a mediator in heaven after saying that that mediator was his adversary. I want you to realize he's hurting, he's confused, but let's just dive into what Job has to say. And he starts by addressing his friends. They love using uh, vain words, and they love picking on each other for talking. So then Job answered and said, I've heard many such things. Miserable comforters are ye all. Shall vain words have an end? Or what emboldeneth thee that thou answerest? And that actually says, what's irritating you so much that you have to talk to me? You have nothing good to say. You could just be quiet. Why, what am I saying that you feel the need to just go after me? I also could speak as you do. If your soul were in my soul's stead, I could heap up words against you and shake my head at you. He says, look, I I could do that if the roles were reversed. I I I can even see myself saying some of the things you're saying. He's giving them a a bone, so to speak. But he says, but I would strengthen you with my mouth and the moving of my lips would assage your grief. Though I speak, my grief is not assaged. And though I forbear, what am I eased? And, And here's the thing. Job is telling his friends, your advice is both tedious and depressing. I've heard it all before, and it's no help at all to me. He wonders, why do you feel so compelled to talk? He moves on and says that if the situation were reversed, and he gives him a moment, as I said, he says, I think I would say a lot of the same words, and he would have probably. He says, but I would have tried to comfort you. 
I would have wanted to comfort you. And I want you to see something here, and it's a little note, and we'll mention it later, that in Job's heart, you still see a servant's heart. He admits to how he would have talked, but he says, I still want to bring comfort to others. I want to be comforted and I want to comfort. Um, and then he says something in six. He says, it doesn't help to be quiet. And it doesn't help to speak. So I'd rather express what's going on. And, and in all honesty, that's a statement of fairness from Job. He's just asked the friends, why in the world do you keep talking? And then he tells them why in the world he keeps talking. I'm talking because being quiet doesn't help and speaking doesn't help. And I'd rather speak than be quiet. And so he goes on. So he's not saying I'm doing this because it makes me feel better. He's saying I just of the bad options, I pick this one. This is the bad option I'm going for. So he turns now to speak to God and his wrath. Now, but now he hath made me weary. Thou hast made desolate all my company. And he's talking about God. He says, you've worn me down and wiped out my family. You filled me with wrinkles, which is a witness against me. And my leanness rising up in me beareth witness to my face. And he says this, you have afflicted me with this suffering. And now I look guilty. The fact that I am this way points to the fact that everyone thinks I'm wrong. This worn, sick body is an accusation against me. It negates my innocence. And then he talks, this is about God. He teareth me in his wrath who hateth me. He, he gnasheth upon me with his teeth. And he's, he's, he's talking about a, like a wild animal attack. Mine enemy, that's that word. Mine enemy sharpeneth his eye upon me. God has ripped me apart in his anger. He hates me and has chewed me up. And then mine enemy. And as I said before, it's satam. It's an M at the end, if we're using our letters. To, to means to hate actively. But it's really linked to the Hebrew word satan, Satan, which is prosecutor. And he's saying to God, you're my enemy and you've put your eye on me and think of a wild animal. Uh, I, I would sh- I will share the story and probably make the little kids feel bad. I, I was in my barn and I hear squealing outside and I think, huh, what's going on? Um, and so I finished shutting the window, go out and realize that our cats have killed two little bunnies right there. And the crying noise was um, the cats torturing the bunnies, which is horrible. And now my daughter will feel bad again. I unwisely told him that story and then they came in. We have horrible cats. Um, all that to say, why, are the, why is the bunny crying? Because as an animal, as a cat sits there, it, it looks at its prey and in, in essence, it's playing with it. It's torturing it. And that's what Job's saying. God as my adversary is pulled back. He's gnashed at me. And now he's pulling back and just watching me cry. That's what God's done to me. This is where, that's why it's such a low point. He's, he's going and saying to God, you're like a wicked cat. If you like bunnies, you're a wicked cat. You're, you're just, you're just staring and you're not leaving until you destroy. And then he goes on 10 to 11. They speaking now of people, they have gaped upon me with their mouth. They've smitten me upon the cheek reproachfully. They have gathered themselves together against me. God hath delivered me to the ungodly and have turned me over into the hands of the wicked. And here you get a little insight into Job's life. He's on an ash heap outside of town and people aren't sympathetic of him. They're coming out so they can smack him in his face. They're coming out so they can spit on him. They can mock him and they can make fun of him. Because as he sits out there, people now are looking at the great man who has declined and they're getting their opportunity to gloat over him. And so as we look back over his time on the ash heap, he's not always alone. He'd rather be alone because when people come by, they're not there to help him or encourage him. And as we're going to see with his friends, they do nothing to help either. And so Job now goes and says, this is what you've done to me, God. I was at ease, but he hath broken me asunder. I was doing great and he shattered me. He also hath taken me by my neck and shaken me to pieces. He set me up for his mark. His archers compassed me around about. He cleaveth my reins asunder and my kidneys and doth not spare. He poureth out my gall upon the ground. He breaketh me with breach upon breach. He runneth upon me like a giant. 
If you understand what he said that God did to him, he says this, God broke me. He grabbed me by the neck and dashed me to pieces. He, I became his target, his archers, which by the way, it can either refer to God's arrows or it can refer to mythological gods of the Ugarite period. And they're shooting arrows at me. He, he got all his minions to fire in to me. They're hitting my vital organs. My kidneys have been slit open and my vital juices have been spilled. I'm overrun constantly. He's, he's kind of pushing back on Eliphaz. I'm the one that's being overrun. I'm not the guy that got the shield and is going to attack God. I'm being overrun here by God. I'm being destroyed is what he says. And then he, he responds, what have I done? He says, I've sewed sackcloth upon my skin and defiled my horn in the dust. My face is foul with weeping and on my eyelids, eyelids is the shadow of death, not for any injustice in my hands. Also, my prayer is pure. He says, and I've responded by putting sackcloth on, mourning clothes over, scabbed over nasty skin. I've buried my head in the dirt. My face is swelled up and red from crying. There's dark circles around my eyes. I look like death warmed over. I don't look alive. I look awful, he says. And then he asserts again, I've not done violence. My prayers are pure. Now that's not meaning that he feels himself sinless. He says, I have sacrificed for my sins. I've been forgiven. I have approached God with the correct motive and purpose. And that's critical. I haven't approached God to manipulate God. I haven't approached God so he gives me money. I've approached God with the right motive as God and as I should. And then it's, and I want you to realize this. So he just makes that statement. And I want you to realize that verse 11, he said, God is basically my Satan. Satan, he is my hated act of hatred is coming from him. And now 18 through 22 is how he reaches back into hope in God as his mediator. He says, O earth, cover not thou my blood. O let my cry have no place. Also now, behold, my witness is in heaven and my record is on high. My friends scorn me, but mine eye poureth out tears unto God. By the way, that's the same God he just accused of wiping him out. And he says, there is absolutely no human help possible here. He says, but I will cry to God. That's where I go. Oh, that one might plead for a man with God as a man pleaded for his neighbor. And what he's saying really here is God is pleading for me before God, like my friend. And then 22, a little turn back to depression. When a few years are come, then I shall go the way whence I shall not return. Which he always speaks of death as a closing moment. Next week in chapter 19, he's actually going to talk about after the grave standing before God. So you're going to see him see theologically correct there. Uh, but what he's saying here is like an innocent victim of murder, Job requests that his blood not be swept under the rug. It needs to be dealt with. It doesn't need to be silenced. If you go back to Abel, God said his blood cried from the earth to him against Cain. If you go to Revelation 6.10, it says the martyrs cried with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? In other words, this idea of the blood crying up is this idea of avenging for murder. <laughs> and it's, it's, it transcends. It goes through all the way into the laws in, in Exodus and Leviticus where there's the uh, the cities of refuge, where if you accidentally kill someone, the avenger doesn't come kill you. And you think, wow, what a, what a um, revengeful society. No, if someone's murdered as their family, you make sure their blood doesn't lie silent. You must avenge that, take care of it. And Job now points and says, I want my blood to cry out. I don't want that cry to, to, to be silent, he says. And then he points to who he knows is his mediator, his witness. And it is God himself and, and Hartley notes this. He says, he is pushing through the screen of his troubles to the real God. And I, I want you to see how closely this is linked to telling God, you're my adversary. You have literally attacked me like a wild animal and ripped me apart for no reason. And then he says, but my hope is in God. Who is going to mediate between me and God? God is. Who's going to defend me to God? God is. And we understand that, right, in the gospel? Who stands in our place? Who is our mediator? Jesus Christ. As God looks down, he has to condemn sin as a holy God. Who defends the believer? Christ does. His blood. And so we see in Job here, even though he is struggling, crying to God, he says, my friends are going to scorn me. They haven't defended me at all, but I'm going to cry to God instead. And I want you to think for a minute. Job, in this speech, feels, and I use that word and I highlighted it, feels like God is the enemy. Job, in his emotional being, says, God is my enemy. 
yet he knows who God really is and therefore runs to God. And I want you to see in some ways how we wrestle with this and how Job wrestled with it because Job did not build his theology on his emotions. He feels like God is attacking him, yet he knows that God is defending him. And so he turns to God in spite of his feelings. And then he talks about someone pleading his case before God, knowing that God himself is the one who will do that. And we know that to be true. He closes with a sense of urgency, though. This is where I call reality comes swooping back in. He says the press of life is creeping in. His time is limited. But he, but he affirms boldly the hope that Eliphaz denied. I'm going to hope in God to rescue me and defend me to God. And they say to Job, how dare you talk to God that way? And Job says, God's going to talk to God that way. God is going to speak. And look, this refutes our whole world system, right? Because they say we don't have to talk to God. We don't have to address God. We don't have to speak or answer to God. Job's not denying that. He's just saying the only answer to God is God. The only defense I have is Jesus Christ. I have no defense in myself. I need my mediator. I throw all of my hope on him. And so now Job in 17 closes his speech with the lament. <clears throat> and I'll try to work through this quickly. And I want you to note this. Job has high moments, but he has some low ones. And he is definitely buried in despair. I hope that's an encouragement to you if you're suffering and you're feeling the despair. And, and I know this is a question that comes up. Why do I still feel this way? Why do I still struggle this way? I should be able to get over this. I know better. And I want you to realize this. Knowing better is, is exactly what Job did. He, he lived in what he knew. He didn't feel any better. And 17 tells you that as we walk through it. Come in here. My breath is corrupt. My days are extinct. The graves are ready for me. That's a pretty bold giving up statement there. Are there not mockers with me and doth not mine eye continue in their provocation? He's saying, my spirit, my desire for life is broken. My days are cut short and the graveyard is beckoning to me. All he sees around him are mockers. There's no friends. There's no family. All he sees and hears and feels are their taunts and insults, possibly driving him to tears. And then he says this, and this is an interesting turn back to what we just said. Lay down now, put me in surety with thee. Who is he that will strike hands with me? And he's saying, basically to God in this moment, please be my guarantee. I need you to guarantee me. He goes on, for thou hast hid their heart from understanding. He's still blaming God for the friend's response while blaming the friends. Therefore shalt thou not exalt them. Don't lift them up, he says. He that speaketh flattery to his friends, even the eyes of his children shall fail. He returns the idea of mediation he needs God to step in, but he then talks about the friends and he's saying, don't give them a victory, which God does not, by the way. It comes all the way to the end and God condemns the friends. We've talked about that, except for Job intervening on their behalf. And he goes on, he hath made me also a byword of the people and aforetime I was as tabaret. Mine eyes also is dim by reason of sorrow and all my members are as a shadow. It's a little bit of a difficult verse. Uh, Job says, I'm synonymous with a disgraced, unrepentant sinner. Someone spit upon. And that's the idea of tabret. That noun in Hebrew to pet is connected to the Ugarite word for spit. And so as you're reading this and they're blending things together, it basically, as you read the context, I'm a byword to the people. I'm just somebody they spit on. And when you spit on somebody in that culture, well, in any culture, really, I don't know of any culture that says, oh, we love being spit on. That's our favorite. Um, and if there is a culture, well, I don't want to be a part of it. Um, but you spit on somebody, you're just basically saying you're nothing, you're useless, you're, you're, you're gone there. And he says, I'm a shadow of my former self, and basically saying this, I am powerless. But aren't we all powerless? We cannot save ourselves, we cannot redeem ourselves. And he says, upright men shall be astonished at this, or should have been, and the innocent shall stir up himself against the hypocrite. The righteous also shall hold on his way, and he that hath clean hands shall be stronger and stronger. But as for you all, do you return and come now, for I cannot find one wise man among you. Just in despair, let me put a dig into my friends. And I, I like a little bit of this. I can see some fire, just sparks up there. And he says, basically, don't come back. I don't need your help. Uh, he returns here likely to his friends. And he says, look, truly righteous people would be astonished by my suffering. 
They would confront the hypocrite, the godless. Job, being righteous, will stick with what he knows to be true. I'm facing undeserved suffering and maintain that he has clean hands. He closes saying they, his friends, lack wisdom. They can try to defend it again. He says, do you return? But their argument and they themselves will be found lacking. And again, these guys don't pull any punches, even in the midst of sorrow. He's fighting back. And then Job slips back into some gloomy thoughts. My days are past. My purposes are broken off, even the thoughts of my heart. He says this, and I want you to realize this. After his bold hope statement, I feel hopeless. I have no plans. I have no daydreams. They change the night into day. The light is short because of darkness. See, the friends act as if the day is coming. Just repent and be patient, they say. But that's not the case nor could it be because Job's not going to make a false confession. No, Job says this. If I wait, the grave is mine house. I have made my bed in the darkness. I have said to corruption, thou art my father. And I want you to realize he's basically saying death is my family. To the worm, thou art my mother and my sister. And then 13, another ray of hope. And where is now my hope? As for my hope, who shall see it? And depending on, on how you read this, this could be a question. It could be, do they go down to the bars of the pit? They rest together in the dust, or they shall go down to the bars of the pit when our rest together is in the dust. In other words, where's my hope? And he comes to this desperate feeling that he needs this temporal response. But here's the idea. No, Job says, I'm headed to the grave. That's my family now. But I want you to realize what's still on his mind. Hope is on his mind. Because he knows something about death. Death doesn't bring hope. I want you to Face back, what did Job's wife tell him? Curse God and die. And what does so many anxious and depressed and suffering people think death gives them? An escape. And even in his sorrow, Job is telling us that in the pits of despair, there's only hope in God. There is no escape in death. There is no release. And so as we look at this, we know this to be true. We live in a world that oftentimes grabs hold of it. We have a a wicked world that wants to encourage people in certain scenarios to choose death. And Job is telling them right there that that's not the option. There's no escape in death. Job was fairly clear in what he said, but let's take a little look at what Job means as we wrap up. Uh, He's responded to Eliphaz, confronting his windy and hopeless message with hope. But we notice something. It's all cloaked in despair Um, We see that Job has become more settled in his mind about a mediator in heaven, but he wrestles with his feelings toward God regarding his circumstances. I want to throw this out there. Uh, As a true believer, here is Job who knows who his hope is, his redeemer, and yet he wrestles with his feelings toward God. Uh, Don't let Satan twist your feelings, but also don't trust your feelings and instead stick with what you know to be true about God. I want you to realize this. Despite his confusion and doubt, Job has a clear objective. Verses 1 through 6, he wants to be comforted. He's not consumed with being right. He wants to be comforted. He even talks about how if he was in their sandals, so to speak, he would comfort the person. And I want you to see a glimpse. I've mentioned it before, but as you look at Job wanting to be comforted, you look at the heart of a true believer, and a true believer desires to serve and desires to comfort. And I I put here, that's a heart that we should emulate. Uh, More importantly, Job has a clear hope, 18 through 22. His hope is in God. He knows that God is the only qualified mediator and he trusts in him completely. He knows the truth about God. He might feel differently, but he knows the truth. And he affirms his hope in God, even while he feels that God is the enemy. Yet despite that feeling, he rests on the truth about God that is bigger than his circumstances and feelings. And this is really critical because our feelings move, our circumstances change, and look, circumstances can get very difficult. Our feelings can be battered and bruised and destroyed. We, can be, uh, we could have been oppressed, afflicted, abused, manipulated, whatever it may be. We may feel a certain way, but we must rest in the truth and not the feelings or circumstances. And it doesn't mean Job is overcome because we also see a clear struggle. 7 through 17 and all of chapter 17, Job still feels overwhelmed by his suffering, overwhelmed by the failure of his friends to lift him up, overwhelmed by his confusion. Yet he still turns to God. He becomes more focused on his hope 
solely being in God, as he flounders around through these circumstances, we get to the kind of middle portion of all this conversation. Job is settling on his only hope being God. He's going to talk a lot more. So there's a lot more he has to say, but I want that to be an encouragement. We can feel like we are drowning and still be growing in trust and confidence in our Lord and Savior. Let me say that again. You can feel like you're drowning. You can say, I'm getting nowhere, I'm drowning, and still be growing in your faith and confidence in your Lord and Savior. That's exactly what we're seeing from Job. He is drowning in his suffering, overwhelmed by it, but his confidence in Christ ultimately is growing. This life may be dragging us down. People may be discouraging us from every angle. We may feel the weight crushing us, and yet we can still reach for God no matter what the world says. We can still rest in his grace and mercy fixated on his hope. What shines out of Job's response in this instance is his growing conviction and trust in God as his personal mediator, despite his swirling emotions. If you believe only when you feel like believing, then you're not going to believe a lot. When you believe, when everything in your being is saying something else, well, now you are believing. So I ask this question, is our trust and faith growing despite our circumstances? Here's the application. Keep it short. The world, like Eliphaz, denies hope in God. They do. Because if either there is no God, so there's no hope in God, or, or they deny the need for grace, so they deny undeserved grace because they don't want to need God at all. They're fine if he's distant or non-existent, but they want to deny undeserved grace, deny the need for grace. They prefer instead their own system of thinking and theology, a system that keeps them in control where they can earn their salvation by their standards and merits. And you might say to me, well, Kenny, there's a bunch of people in the world that don't talk at all about salvation. Yeah, that's their salvation. That's their faith. That's what they bank on. That's, that's their system that they have in control. Eliphaz can control the system. Do good, get good. Do bad, get bad. I am in the driver's seat. What I do bears direct result for my life. The problem with that is that's not reality. There is no hope apart from God. That becomes glaringly apparent when we see the rampant hopelessness in the world around us. So as we close out the first round of the second cycle of speeches, how about that for a long-winded sentence, ask yourself this, where is my hope? Where is my hope? And here's the second part of that question. Is it directly linked to my Savior or somehow tied up in my circumstances? Where is my hope? Is it directly linked to my Savior or somehow tied up in my circumstances? Let's pray together. Heavenly <coughs> Father, thank you for this time we have to gather together, to study your word, uh, to look at the life of Job, and though his life is difficult to read about and study, their words are hard oftentimes to understand. But we see here the battle between what the world has to offer, a tradition, and we can apply almost any system into the place that Eliphaz is talking about, or seeking God as the only hope. Can you be approached? Can we be right or made right with you? We know that Eliphaz is right about us. We're, we're drinking iniquity. We're wicked and we're disgusting. But the fact is, he's not right about the application. You have made a way for us to have a relationship with you. And that's the hope that Job keeps pointing to. Help us to have our hopes fixed steadily on you, linked directly to our Lord and Savior. Help us to be able uh, to rise above the circumstances and not have our hope linked to how life is going for us or how we feel. Uh, we may feel overwhelmed. Circumstances may be dire and difficult, but help us to look uh, to you and only you for our hope and our salvation. In your precious and holy name, amen.